listening to the Human Care Podcast, part of the Invisible Not Broken Podcast Network. I'm your host, Eva Minkoff. On this show, I have candid conversations with chronic illness warriors and insightful practitioners who are redefining what it means to be human when faced with health challenges. I'm also the founder of Wellacopia, the matching site for healthcare relationships. We connect chronic illness wellness seekers with integrative providers best suited to be their partners in care. To match with your dream doctor, therapist, nutritionist, acupuncturist, chiropractor, and more, visit wellacopia.com. Today's episode is about challenges, personal, professional, or both, especially when COVID-19 is around. Meet physical therapist, Jay Berger. Jay has been working in the health field as a PT for over 20 years. She has worked with and learned from many different people suffering from chronic pain, cardiopulmonary issues, autoimmune diseases like RA, MS, and EDS, fibromyalgia, severe OA, progressive neurological diseases, as well as many other comorbidities. She believes that her experience has been a mixture of clinical expertise and compassion, especially given that these warriors' issues are often wrongly dismissed or minimized. That is certainly true. In part one of our conversation, Jay and I cover her story, taking us through her personal and professional insights, including challenges in and outside her her home. She also shares with us stories of strength from some of her patients and how important it is to treat the person versus the diagnosis. We also tap into telemedicine and how it's shifting in the age of COVID-19. Before we get started, a reminder that all conversations and health claims on this podcast are based on individual experiences and expertise. Everyone has their own personal and professional truths and should be treated as such. Okay, let's get started. Hey, Jay, thanks for joining us today. Hi. Uh, I'm really looking forward to having you share the unique insight you have as a physical therapist and using telemedicine, especially at this time of COVID-19. But I'd love for you to first tell us a bit more about yourself, a little about yourself as a, a person and professionally, and also if you feel comfortable like sharing what COVID-19 has been like for you so far. Okay. Um, okay, well, I don't usually talk about myself, so let me think for a second. Um, I am a passionate person in the sense that I really, truly have beliefs and I'm going to fight to make sure that they are there for the client and the person that I work with. Um, I don't believe in, I just don't know the answer. I hate that question. I hate that answer. I believe you take everything that you have and you give everything that you can back. And that's just myself. Um, I have been privileged to work places that nobody else has worked in the world, and I have learned tremendously from them. I happen to just be in the right place at the right time, doing very atypical PT things, and I loved it. And I have all throughout my career learned from my patients. My patients have taught me a tremendous amount. 
And I'm grateful for it because I don't think I could be a good clinician unless I understood the person I'm dealing with, um, all the aspects that they're dealing with and really treat them holistically instead of in a silo. Um, personally, I probably have the similar mindset. I mean, I got married a little later um, on purpose. I adopted my first daughter at six days old. Um, she's black and I have a Catholic husband and I'm Jewish in my background. So we're already eclectic. <laughs> then we add to the mix at um, 17 and 363 days old, another girl who comes in who has a bad um, past as far as her family and everything, never had a strong family life and was uh, in a very abusive emotionally and physical situation and brought her in. And we have dealt with a lot of emotional issues uh, from both of them associated with today's world, I think is the best part of it. That makes any sense at all. Um, but again, I just feel that my heart goes out to people who have been through things and trying to remember where they're coming from. And you take that into your clinical work as well, because you're dealing with another human. You're not dealing with a disease process. And it may not make sense to you. It may not be realistic to you, but it is to that person. And you have to get into their head of where are they coming from and how can you help them? And when, uh, I don't know the um, time frame of like when you adopted your da daughters, right? You said both. Um, how did what you learn from your experiences with them sort of plug into your experiences with treating people with chronic illnesses? Um, probably the emotional component because uh, my biologic, not biologic, my daughter by um, legal daughter deals with anxiety and depression and has been suicidal. And so has the one that I've brought in. And we spent a couple of years in and out of either institutions or trying to go through crisis management and whatever. And that aspect of it really is not, is maybe an extreme sense of what some people go through every day. You know, I mean, so you have somebody, for an example, with COPD that's having trouble breathing. There's nothing probably worse than not being able to breathe. And so you're a chronic state of, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And with COVID, it just exacerbates it. So you have these issues and you know, if you go out, you could have even bigger issues and you already feel so vulnerable. So I, I, I don't know if I answered your question, but I think the most of it is just the um, vulnerability of life, I think for one, and how quickly your life can turn from how you look at things, um, that your perspective can, can need some help. Um, and that society plays a really big role, unfortunately, in how we are with ourselves, particularly the younger generation. You know, how we look at ourselves and how we view ourselves is, is intimately related to all the crap 
that you see on the reality networks and um, what normal is, quote unquote, um, and what everybody should be, quote unquote. And I think that we do that as adults too. I think we still compare ourselves as adults to, you know, well, she looks like she's really healthy. She's, she's having no trouble, you know, and yet she may be in chronic pain, but you don't see that unless you go into her home and you talk to her and you talk about the situation. And so we have a lot of um, interest to see how we rave among other people. And in chronic illness, I think a lot of it is feeling like you're in a silo, that people don't know that there's other people out there with the same thing. And that's been my understanding from a lot of people is you feel like you're the only one and that sense of loneliness and that sense of no one gets me compounds the chronic illness in my mind. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that's why this podcast exists and all these other chronic illness podcasts, uh, um, in addition to groups and platforms, it's because we think starting with us started to wake up and we're like, huh, I'm not alone. I really want to connect with people and organizations that um, have felt the way I have and and want to support one another. It's a like tragically beautiful thing. It's cathartic. It's cathartic. Yeah. You know, it, there's something to be said for I'm not alone, you know. Absolutely. And well, first of all, thank you for for telling us about um that that snapshot of your your background personally. Like I didn't even know those things. So, that was really great of you to share. And that's one of the reasons I like to ask practitioners about their background is I think it's undeniable that their personal lives are going to influence their professional lives and vice versa. Cause you are a whole person and you have a whole life. Right. It's really beautiful. You're even cooler than I thought you were. <laughs> I already thought you were pretty cool. Uh, so, so we've said vaguely with uh, you've helped a lot of people with chronic illnesses. Can you tell us, specifically maybe some of those that are a little bit more on the rare side that you've had experience with? Um, surprisingly, the people that have been the sickest have been younger. Um, you know, you think that when you're going to treat somebody, it's the old that have all the issues and yet you go into people's homes and I was talking about this offline. I have a woman who I absolutely admire um and and again going back to the me part of it i get so much from treating patients personally she taught me so much about looking at what i call the charles swindell things which is looking at life as you make it what you want it to be so she had come out of the hospital and she had um, fibromyalgia, EDS, Hodge disease, which is common, obviously, with EDS. Um, she had rheumatoid arthritis. She had chronic dislocations to the point that you could watch the joint pop out. Um, she had gastrointestinal issues. She was having trouble eating, so she was constantly uh, throwing up, and, and she was probably 90 pounds on a good day, which was way too um, light for her. Her family didn't acknowledge she was sick. They said it was all in her head. Oh my God. Uh, After all those diagnoses. What's that? 
after all those diagnoses, some of which are very visible. Yeah, yeah. Her um, so there was no family support. Right. Um, and she was 32. And she had other issues, those were the probably the main ones, but what manifested itself with these things is a cardiac problem. So she had a, a very weak heart. Um but probably one of the most lovely people I've ever met. Um, I, I just can't, I don't even know how to put into words her way of viewing how she handles things as being just, well, it's just what I do. You know, it's like, we all do that. Like she didn't take anything and say, you know, I deserve this. I deserve that. She didn't have any pity for herself. Um, she was able to be there for the other person because she was worried about me when I came in with a splint one day, like, what's wrong? What's wrong? It's like, don't worry about me, <laughs> you know, um, just amazing. And, and I've had a lot of people like her um, in a similar age group that live in their homes that, that never go out um, and can't go out without help, yet they're young. And they should be able to be in the, you know, the prime of their life and enjoying life like everybody else. And dealing with the magnitude of medications and treatments and issues that she deals with before she even gets up in the morning, you know, is just astounding. So I guess I've forgotten what your question is. <laughs> That's cool. Oh, well, I guess actually it was very simply what types of illnesses um, do you, have you had a lot of experience with that are like a bit more on the rare side? But um, this, it seems like this this woman has a combination of many of them. I do, um, I do a lot of the um, chronic pain, um, typically fibromyalgia, um, chronic pain just in general. Um, EDS, I've actually had um, too many. Um, patients. Um, I deal a lot with uh, neurologic disease processes. So I deal a lot with people with progressive neurologic processes and a lot of them have genetic um, issues. And with that is it's very rare. Like I have one person who I had to look up the diagnosis. I'd never even heard of it. And then it's like 1% of 1% of 1% of people have it, but she's left with this issue that manifested itself um, cognitively. It manifested itself um, physically by, she was more walking like a um, toddler mm -hmm. at best, and she was 18 years old. You know, so I, I've dealt a lot with the neurologic ones and I've dealt a lot with the people with, I would say um, stage four COPD, um, idiopathic, um, pulmonary fibrosis, um, cardiac issues where their heart is on their, literally on their sleeve. They're holding their heart mechanically on their sleeve while they're waiting for a transplant. Um, I've had people that were on um, nine liters of oxygen at home as a maintenance med. Um, I can't think of anybody diagnostically individually. It's it's usually not a one thing. It's it's usually they have a couple of things. I, I rarely, I mean, everybody always tells me you treat the train wrecks. I'm like, well, I like the people that are complex, you know, and, and typically people that have one issue don't just have one issue. They often have multiple issues. So I guess nothing stands out to me individually because you're treating the person and I can think of people 
it, that I've treated and the faces come to my mind, but the diagnoses don't necessarily come to my mind. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And it's true for us spoonies. Um, it tends to be when it, when it rains, of course, with conditions, I don't, I don't personally know anyone with fibromyalgia that just has fibromyalgia because I think it's, it's usually a, a comorbidity. And if they don't have any other diagnosis, hope I'm not stepping on any toes, but you probably have another one. And <laughs> it's just been undiagnosed um, since it's usually caused from chronic stress. Like I have two conditions, uh, but there's a whole bunch of other things that really haven't been pinpointed, like, a, I don't know, des they haven't been given a, a, a designated diagnosis yet, whether they're part Maybe. of it. Or, yeah, like, like my doctor just sort of confirmed the other day again that I have IBS. And I was like, great, another vague diagnosis for eating. Yes. <laughs> It's called a trash bag diagnosis. Uh, oh yeah, I have fibromyalgia, hypermobility syndrome, and IBS, all of which just kind of like, you're really sensitive in a lot of pain that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> well, um, and the thing with that is that they, even with all those comorbidities, you know, it amazes me how some people function. But they do believe that there's actually maybe a common thread to a lot of these being autoimmune and um, inflammatory, which I'm glad to see them looking at this less from a, you know, look here and here and here and all these different areas and say, okay, maybe there's something to all of this because this wasn't around as much 50 years ago. It wasn't even around. It wasn't, it wasn't just that it wasn't diagnosed. I don't think it was around as much as it is now. I think something's happening that, that we're developing these issues yeah I, I definitely agree on that, with that mm -hmm. i agree with that for sure uh i think while we are getting better at diagnosing slowly um there's also just a lot more happening mm -hmm. uh, for reasons that are will be very hard to pinpoint because there's so many factors but anyway actually so there's two separate but also um overlapping topics that i really wanted to talk about today and those are um, telemedicine and then also um, therapy, like f physical therapy, not just physical therapy, um, during COVID-19, since we all are basically forced to do telemedicine at this point. So can you first tell us a bit more about uh, telemedicine and how it's been used? And you've had a lot of experience with it being used for physical modalities. Because most people, if they knew anything about telemedicine before right now, uh, they knew it maybe about like for therapy, like mm -hmm. therapy, and that's it. The idea of doing any kind of physical care via telemedicine is just way over people's heads. So um, whether people have experienced that now, if like you're listening now in April, 2020, um, or in this relative time, I'm, I'd, uh, yeah, I just want to hear what your background is on that in the past and now. What have you seen change? Um, I think there's definitely more awareness now and more, I wouldn't necessarily say acceptance, but acknowledgement that it exists. I, the more people know that the term exists and that it may be something that they will use. It doesn't hold as much of the stigma of the, um, there used to be a lot of stigma about, you know, there, we're going to be um, these little isolated people in our own little places and we're not going to connect anymore as humans and there's not going to be the human touch um all the care that you get when you go to the client to the clinician's office 
is going to be lost. Um, but most of my friends that are clinicians were curious how I was going to do physical therapy in telehealth anyway. And I'm always one of those renegades that always thinks out of the box anyway. And I'm, if you tell me I can't do it, then I'm damn going to do it. <laughs> if I was on that trail, you have just fueled me. And actually, it was really easy to, to do it. Um, it. It lends itself to a lot more than people think. But one of the things that it really lends itself to is telehealth used to be thought of as people who lived remotely and couldn't get out. But when you think of that, you think of the elderly. Um, it used to be thought of that it was for people who couldn't find a specialist in the area. And so that was available. And it was really not much more used. It wasn't used for much more than mental health and in the school system for PT, uh, for OT and speech, excuse me. It was used fairly often for that. And the physical aspect of it really stymied people. And I think it still does until they've tried it. But what I see is more people, even clinicians getting into it now, looking at it as another platform to offer services, which is huge because telehealth is not gonna take away from other services. It's going to amplify the opportunity. It's going to, um, possibly allow us to connect better when we couldn't have connected before. They're using it now in the ER and they're having specialists call into the ER physician to talk about how to deal with somebody when you're in a little community area, cardiologist in the area, and yet you've got this little child with cardiac issues. So it, I think it's going to improve healthcare in that regard. But in terms of the physical aspect of it, um, what I've seen since before COVID is People were very reluctant to tap into it, both from the technology aspect of it, that was gonna be something very complicated. And from the standpoint that there's no way that you can help me by not touching me. Right. How can you help me not touching me? And my defense to that is, I would say 80% of what I do as a clinician is teach, demonstrate. It's not what I do, it's what I'm teaching you to do so that you can continue to do it. And I can teach you almost everything that I need to teach you by just talking with you and demonstrating to you and showing you and watching how you do it and helping tweak how you're doing it until it looks like you're doing it right. It's not gonna ever serve as the platform for manual therapy. There are some aspects that can help, but, but a manual therapist has spent years feeling things to know what they feel and everything, but it's an, a nice adjunct. So you can come on to the, to the teleplatform and follow that patient through their exercise program at home, which is in the situation they're going to be in, as opposed to a perfect clinic with a mat and say, oh, well, they're on the bed. I have to modify this um, or wait, they're not doing it right. I can, I can watch this and I can fix it before they come to clinic again. I don't have to wait. Um, with COVID, I think it's pushed people. I don't necessarily think that people have embraced it. I think it's pushed the envelope that not only do clinicians and clients need to utilize it, 
way more than they thought they would ever have to. But it's also made insurance companies and other pay and payers open up their eyes a little bit in a way that they hadn't been. Since most payers were not um, reimbursing for telehealth. Yeah. And I can't tell you why, because I don't follow that thread. I try very hard not to. But the long and the short is that Medicare is still on the fence about therapy. You know, they've finally accepted physicians and the nurses. And but even that's very limited, you know, as far as reimbursement goes. So COVID's open up this Pandora box. What will happen after COVID goes away will be very interesting. Yeah. Whether it will retract back or whether it will stay open in the minds of people and payers and whatnot. I think it will do something in between um, because that's healthcare, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I think for clinicians, it's actually expanded their box, their toolbox of opportunity. And that's good that it's taught us how to do something with a different skill set and a different modality than we used before, particularly for clients that have difficulty getting out for medical reasons or physical reasons that have nothing to do with that they live remotely. They could live in a city and not be able to get out of their apartment. I mean, that, that's definitely true now, but even, but even true with people with, especially with chronic illnesses in general, if someone's ill, it's like they don't, don't want to leave. Right. Even to go a block. Um, well, and it's, it's physically taxing. Like I have uh, multiple patients with um, ALS and at the advanced stages, it's exhausting just to transfer. And now you're going to ask them to get in and out of the, the wheelchair, get in and out of the car, get to the, ther- get to the therapist or the physician or whatever, sit, wait, come back and do the whole thing back. And now you have to still do everything you have to do during the day. And you say the same thing for chronic pain or chronic fatigue or anything like that. These aren't the patients that you want going out of the home and back in to do their exercises. You want them to do them in the comfort of their home and rest so that they don't injure themselves. So they don't, you know, fall. um, So they continue because it's doable type of thing. And how long have you been doing telemedicine for, for um, physical therapy? Um, since 2017, about July 2017, we launched the website. And I have done a little bit. I just started doing it with the school patient um, because the school systems had to find, this is a, a specialty school, so they had to find something to fulfill the um the programs for the kids that couldn't get into the, so I'm working with the kid now, um, which is new to me because I, I have not worked with an autistic kid with uh, cerebral palsy and multiple visual issues mm-hmm. on this platform. And I wouldn't have normally have said he was a good person to put on the platform, but relatively late, uh, uh, as of late, he's been doing well. You know, he's actually, I guess, taking more responsibility that he has to do something for himself. So you're, you're, and he are, are being pushed as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how we're going to grow and learn new things is, I mean, I, unfortunately, sometimes it's because you're, you're pushed to do it and you got to figure it out. Right. And that, and I think that's a huge part of the telehealth platform right now for a lot of practitioners is, well, I never did it before, but I'm going to have to find a way to make it work. And therefore, there's going to be more innovation in terms of 
like digital health tools as well. Exactly. I actually, my husband literally said that to me the other day, he had his first new patient, uh, via, via like a a telehealth, like a video conference. And I asked him right before, I didn't realize it was his first one because I thought it had been going on for a while. And I said, Oh, so what do you find to be different? Like easier or, uh, more difficult from doing this versus another, an in-person visit. And he goes, I don't know, but I'm going to have to figure it out. Like, it's just because that's what he has to do. And, and doctors, they understand the human body and the way patients work, um, at least to an extent. And, um, and therefore, they'll be able to come up with ways to make even the most, the, the specialty treatments that are in person, like those that are more geared towards being in person than not. Um, they're going to find ways to help ed- even educate the patients and how to look for things themselves. So like physical exams, which is mm-hmm. definitely not going to be the same as a physician doing it themselves, but, but it, it, there, I, there's so many technological tools that are being developed to allow yeah. for that. And um, they've even talked about kiosks in different areas for people who didn't have it themselves to go into a kiosk and close the door and do it. Um, that's been going on for three or four years. They've been talking about that. I haven't seen it come to fruition, but I wouldn't be surprised just like a minute clinic, you know, type of a thing. But it's- Interesting. It's surprising to, I think most people, but clinicians, half the time, you kind of know what's going on before the person, before you even t- touch the person. They've told you so much. Yeah. So your eyes and your ears, really do give you a lot of information and people don't realize that they're like, he never touched me well he saw you and he watched you move and he watched this thing watched that I mean it's not I'm saying everybody that doesn't touch you isn't but there's a lot of people who I could tell you looking across the road what's wrong with somebody as far as physically right. by just watching them so yeah. I think that aspect of it has maybe even opened up clinicians eyes that wait a second I have tools that are not my hands and aren't other objects. Yeah, and most doctors, quite frankly, um, will diagnose before uh, an exam of any kind anyway. I'm not saying that, that it's the way it should be, but it, but it just goes to show that their expertise, their practice has already come from making that, those kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. It's just having to, um, well, further their efficacy a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Now there's there are obviously things that do need to be done in person need to be certain like actual um, exams or procedures but yeah I I've definitely seen haven't gone to countless doc- medical doctors and wellness professionals I've gone to physical therapy extensively that like yeah I didn't actually need for them to do X Y and Z in person I think actually for my physical therapist the only thing that she had to do in person and it was like an extra thing she did was actually give me a massage because I have, um, from my hypermobility in my shoulders, I get knots all the time in my upper, my upper back. And that was kind of just like a nice perk that she gave me. That wasn't really necessarily part of the main therapy, but I loved when she gave me a good massage. Like that was great, but. Could you teach, you can teach people to do that too. I had a woman with um, a, a neurologic disease process whose head stayed really far forward. Mm-hmm. And so had a lot of issues associated with that and I taught her husband how to find the trigger spots oh yeah and I 
you know, because it was something that she needed to learn. He needed to learn how to do because I was not going to be there for four years. I was going to be there for six, eight weeks, you know? And so again, going back to, did he know how to do it before? No, but did I give him the skills that he needed to identify it and to um, handle it? I was able to do that. I mean, we're not looking for people to be practitioners, but there is a part of it that, you know, we, we don't like to give up that we can give up. You know, it's like, we're not the, we're not the only people who could do this. Um, we can't maybe have everybody understand heart sounds. Everybody may not be able to do that, but people can tell that you're having palpations, you know, or something's not right, or, you know, what I should do in the first cases of have something not be right. Um, so it's, it's not an end all, it's an add on. Yeah. Actually, maybe we should talk about some help, helping me with my back and my neck right now, because I've been trying to do um, some therapy for myself, but I realized I haven't seen a physical therapist now since I left New York City. And I've been doing the same thing, so I need some brush up. So we can talk about that. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of the Human Care Podcast, part of the Invisible Not Broken Podcast Network. If you haven't already, please take the next 30 seconds to do these three things. Hit our subscribe button, leave feedback with a review, and share this episode with a loved one. Don't forget to check out our official Invisible Not Broken Network Facebook group. Please join us in our community conversations where you can ask questions, connect with fellow Invisible Illness peers, and make suggestions for the podcast. Visit facebook.com slash groups slash Invisible Not Broken. And this link will, of course, be in the show notes. Also, if you ever want to submit a question or suggestion directly, feel free to send an email to chronicillnesspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for tuning in and being part of our mission to transform healthcare into human care.